set in 1930s Alabama, To Kill a Mockingbird tells the story of a young girl, Scout, whose father Atticus Finch defends Tom Robinson, a black man accused of raping an extremely poor white woman called Mayella Ewell. At the trial, Atticus prevents evidence that should prove the accusation to be false. Yet Tom is found guilty. Tom then tries to escape prison and is shot dead. Although venerated by the black community, Atticus's white neighbours ostracise him and the story climaxes when the young scout and her brother Jem are attacked by Mayella's father, Bob. Is this the man who raped you? Well, certainly is. How? I don't know how. He done it. He just done it. You have testified that he choked you and he beat you. You didn't say that he sneaked up behind you and knocked you out cold, but that you turned around and there he was. Although she had been writing for several years, To Kill a Mockingbird was Harper Lee's first novel. She began it in the late 1950s. It was published by J.B. Libincott in New York in 1960. And the following year, it was awarded the Pulitzer Prize. In the years since, it has become mandatory reading in the United States public schools. But its impact on popularity goes far beyond those borders. It has sold over 40 million copies worldwide and has been translated into 40 languages. The story is told from a child's perspective, yet it harbours great moral weight. And that weight echoes throughout a host of novels, ranging from Jan Martel's The Life of Pi and Mark Haddon's The Curious Incident of the Dog on the Night, to Jonathan Saffron Foer's Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, John Boyne's The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, and Emma Donoghue's Room. Somebody told me just now that uh, they thought that you believed Tom Robinson's story again, Iron. You know what I said? <laughs> I said you wrong, man. You dead wrong. Mr. Finch ain't taking this story against Iron. Well, they was wrong, wasn't it? I've been appointed to defend Tom Robinson. Now that he's been charged, that's what I intend to do. You've taken his... You'll excuse me, Mr. Ewell. One of the reasons for the novel's success is due to the simplicity and directness of Lee's prose. A good example of this is the manner in which Lee recounts the moment the young scout and her aunt learn of Tom's death. Aunt Alexandra sat down in Calpurnia's chair and put her hands to her face. She sat quite still. She was so quiet I wondered if she would faint. I heard Miss Maudie breathing as if she had just climbed the steps, and in the dining room the ladies chattered happily. I thought Aunt Alexandria was crying, but when she took her hands away from her face she was not. She looked weary, she spoke, and her voice was flat. Lee's prose style is factual. Rather than try to describe how Scout feels about Tom's death, Lee's writing describes the action. In so doing, Lee brings us into the scene so we feel as if we are witnessing it firsthand. The writing is so immediate, it feels as if the events were happening to us rather than to Scout. By not telling us what Aunt Alexander and Miss Morley feel, we generate our own feelings and transpose them onto the characters. In fact, if you were to change the grammar from the past to the present tense, you could be forgiven for thinking you were reading a screenplay. In other words, Lee's novel lends itself very easily to cinema. So it is no wonder that as soon as the book was published, Hollywood snapped up the movie rights. Here is Oscar-nominated actor Lawrence Fishburne talking about his favourite scene in the film. The most moving moment for me is when Atticus is leaving the courthouse after the trial is over. 
and all the black people are sitting up in the gallery and uh scout and Jem are up there with her with them and 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 the old and the old preacher says stand up mary louise and she goes what she goes stand up your father's passing That scene is like several in the film. Barely any dialogue is spoken, yet an awful lot of story is told. Now that is quite an achievement. Remember, this is a movie that hinges on a court case, so you would expect dialogue to drive it. Yet it is the non-verbal moments that are the most powerful. And the screenplay, which won an Oscar for Horton Foote, is a crisp lesson for aspiring screenwriters. You only resort to dialogue when the pictures and actions cannot communicate what you want to say. Another example of strong visuals is the opening title sequence designed by Stephen Frankfurt. Not as renowned as his contemporary Saul Bass, Frankfurt was nonetheless at the forefront of title design in an era when filmmakers were only beginning to recognise its potential. Frankfurt designed the titles for another movie we looked at recently, Rosemary's Baby, and here to tell us something about Frankfurt's work on Mockingbird is Kyle Cooper, who himself is responsible for the title sequences for Seven, Iron Man and Tron. Some of my favourite title sequences encapsulate the main character's obsession, and in To Kill a Mockingbird, it's about uh, Scout's obsession with her treasure box, and I think it's beautifully photographed the way that um, the marbles distort the background, the way you rack focus through these um, very macro objects. But also I think that the type, even though the type doesn't go behind things like we see a lot now, or you know, it's not necessarily moving in the z-axis, the form of the horizontal lines of the type and the sort of circular marbles and you know, uh, round objects behind that makes for a good contrast. So I believe the type is integrated. Scout opens her treasured cigar box and we see close-ups of a pocket watch, a safety pin, pennies, a mirror, a whistle and wooden dolls. This is Scout's world. And as she takes out some crayons and begins to draw, we see how she sees the rest of the world. The angles are so extremely close, they loom large across the screen. The film may be set in the 1930s, but it most definitely addresses audiences for the early 1960s. In 1955 in Montgomery, Alabama, Rosa Parks had been told by a bus driver to give up her seat to make room for a white passenger. She had refused and her actions served as a major catalyst in the civil rights movement. This story portrayed race relations from a fresh vantage, the vantage of an innocent child untainted by surrounding racism and bigotry. Cooper mentioned the marbles with their shiny surfaces, but while those shiny surfaces reflect the world back to us, they also distort the world. Or are they reflecting a distorted world? Then again, it is worth noting that one of the marbles rolls across the table where it eventually comes into contact with another marble. Two worlds, side by side. Simple like Lee's prose, but highly effective. <laughs> 